And so with clenched teeth and the same rage I had, uh, I determined to forgive them. And I said to my, I said to them, you people, I know that you're not sorry. I know you never will apologize. So I choose to forgive you. This is First Person. Welcome to this week's program. I'm Wayne Shepherd. You're going to hear a powerful account today of a man whose own pain as a child has been channeled by God into a ministry that reaches worldwide. Wes Stafford, the president of Compassion International, will tell his story in a moment. If you've yet to visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com, I hope you will do so soon as there's always additional information about each of our guests and links you can follow. Again, we're found at firstpersoninterview.com. And one feature you may enjoy is the audio archive of past programs. They're all online for listening anytime at firstpersoninterview.com. Wes Stafford has been working on a new book, which we hope to see in the months ahead, but his book, Too Small to Ignore, has had a tremendous impact, not only in its advocacy for children who are victimized around the world, but also because it tells the story of a man who was raised in an African village, but also suffered mistreatment in a Christian boarding school. I ask Wes to tell his story. My folks were missionaries, by the way, uh, Wayne, I don't know if you know this, but they were graduates of Moody Bible Institute. Mm-hmm. I was probably born within a stone's throw of Kroll Hall. Um, uh, They were called to be missionaries, and uh, they were called to the Ivory Coast of West Africa. And uh, I had the privilege of growing up uh, in a little village in the Ivory Coast. Now I can look back and say, boy, that was God's hand, because I grew up among the very poor that I now serve. In fact, Mm -hmm. I I know what it is to be a a child in poverty, uh, because that's who all my friends were. We had no electricity. It was blazing hot, 120 degrees was a typical day. And I got to be raised in a village that had a saying, it takes the whole village to raise a child. And I was the wrong color, but I was uh, one of the kids that got to be blessed by people with that mentality. So, you know, I never fell down and hurt myself without some African swooping in and picking me up, drying my eyes. Almost all of the values that I carry in my heart that I now use to lead compassion, uh, I learned in that village. Uh, about love and joy and hope and time and courage and strength. By the time I was 15 years old and came to the United States, um, half of my boyhood friends had died. Wow. And I, I thought, well, the world's like this. Children die. And then I, then I got to America and discovered there's plenty of food. There's plenty of medicine. They didn't need to die. I had friends who died of uh, measles, for example. I can remember one span of time, one out of every four of my friends died in about two weeks. And I remember finally going to my father with a broken heart saying, Daddy, when, when is it my turn? When, when do I die? Oh. And my dad said, roll up your sleeve, Wes. And I rolled it up. He said, you see those scratches on your arm? Those are called vaccinations. You got that before you came here, so you wouldn't get these kind of diseases. And you know, Wayne, I think I became Compassion's president at that moment <laughs> at age six with, yeah. with blur, tears blurring my eyes. I said to him, Daddy, that's not fair. Hmm. Why don't all the children have scratches? Well, that was the precursor to uh, me being a part of Compassion, where we scratch, we scratch hundreds of thousands of children's little arms, mm-hmm. saving their lives every year. So that was, the, that was the place where I grew up. My father was a linguist. He translated scriptures. I taught Africans how to read their language from the time I was very small. And uh, that was sort of the, you know, the book, uh, that was the best of times. Those were the worst of times. Those were the best of times. It was it was uh, sorrow over poverty, but I was in a I was nestled in a village of love. Mm-hmm. 
sadly, that wasn't what I could do all year long because there was a mission policy that all of the missionary kids across West Africa all went to one place, a boarding school, where we were uh, basically get out of the way so the gospel can go forth was the mindset. And that was a little tough, but the worst part of it was the people that they put in charge of us didn't want to be doing this. They weren't called to care for kids. Uh, they weren't uh, trained to care for kids. They didn't want to care for kids. Nobody was holding them accountable for how they cared for kids. So there was about 50 of us little children in this boarding school, gone from our parents in that loving village for nine months out of each year. And being away from parents, of course, was tough enough, but the worst part of it was we were in a very cruel environment where that was just filled with terror and abuse. And, uh, you know, we were, there were beatings going on all the time. I, I, I can remember when I finally was old enough to do the math, I discovered I was being beaten 17 times oh, a week. Yes. Oh, For st- silly little stuff, you know, I left my, you know, I'm six years old, I left my socks under my bed when I went off to the classroom. Uh, it was there was no reason for that, but these people were extremely angry at uh, their lot in life. And this all went on without anyone being reported. I guess. Well, right? none of it got reported, and that was sort of the diabolical part of it. It was they didn't get reported because they warned us: if you tell your parents what happens here, uh, that will trouble them, and you will ruin their ministry, and there will be Africans in hell because of you. Ah, the old guilt trip. Oh, it worked. They'd use our love for the Lord, our love for parents, and our love for Africans to silence us for the evil that we were going through. It's amazing the uh, the amount of abuse that children will absorb to protect the people they love. And that's what I did, uh, and all of us did. You know, we wrote letters home every week, but we could never tell this. We didn't dare. First of all, they were screening our letters, and if you tried to put out an SOS, uh, you know, you were beaten all over again. So we were, we were abused uh, uh, spiritually, scared to death of God. But there was a point where you actually started to tell your mother what was going on, right? Well, you know, this code of silence got broken by me, ultimately, which shut the school down. Uh, I w- we had been in America for one year on furlough, you know, going around to the visiting, uh, supporting churches. On the way back, uh, we were at the airport. A bunch of us missionary kids were going off on our own with, uh, you know, with escorts, but our parents were coming by ship later with supplies and such. And uh, one of the worst things about this school, not only were they abusing us physically and spiritually, emotionally, and sexually, um, and we had nobody, you know, the very people that we should have been able to run to for help were the ones who were abusing us. Um, They also wouldn't allow us to have pictures of our parents, which some, you know, some genius thought would make us sadder. But my great problem was um, I, I was not sure after nine months that I would know who my parents were. And so for the first month at school, in the midst of the terror, I couldn't forget what they looked like. And by the ninth month, I was afraid I wouldn't recognize them. Mm-hmm. So I'm nine years old, and I take my mother's face in my hands, and I look intently at the, in her eyes at the airport, and I, she finally says, what are you doing, Wes? And I said, oh, Mommy, I just don't want to forget what you look like. Well, she burst into tears. I burst into tears, and I sensed a moment where I might be rescued. And in about 30 seconds, I blurted out, Mama, please don't send me back there. They hate me there. They beat me there. And I remember this look of horror on her face. Well, we had no choice but to climb on the plane. She had no idea this was going on. She had told everybody all year long, oh, the kids love school. They're fine. Um, we climbed on the plane to head back. Nobody would sit with me. The rest of the missionary kids who had maintained this code of silence looked at me like, you know, mm-hmm. dead man walking. You were shunned, yeah. You are dead, yeah. So, but 
true to form, uh, in the month that it took my mom and dad to come by ship with no more than that news flash of horror, uh, sure enough, my mom had a nervous breakdown on the way to Africa. And when, the, when she got to Africa, she had to be turned around and sent right back. In those days, Dad stayed of all things, but she was sent back to America for, you know, for psychological help. Well, when word got up to the school, uh, that Wes had talked, and sure enough, uh, his parents' uh, ministry was destroyed. Uh, there came a very powerful moment in my life. Uh, where uh, the house parent grabbed me up in front of the kids, threw me up on a uh, a folding uh, uh, chair, uh, said, I want you to meet Satan's tool, kids. Uh, we told you not to tell. This guy, Wes, told his parents are ministry. Look at him. There will be Africans in hell because of this man. Oh, man. And I hit my wall. That was as far as I could go. He did one thing more diabolical. He grabbed a candle, a birthday candle. He carved it off so it could burn from both directions, a wick at each end, and lit it. And he says, you think you can serve God and Satan? You want to watch what happened, boys and girls, when someone tries that? And he lit that candle from both ends. And I had had enough. This was the most evil I could handle. I was not Satan's tool. I was just a little boy who had cried out for help. You weren't backing down, were you? I, I, well, I, this is, it's hard to believe at this point, but I refused to back down. I said, I am not dropping this candle. This time I can win. For the first time in my life, he's put me on a level playing field. It's always been him doing whatever he wanted, him beating me. I am not dropping. I don't care how much this hurts. I will not give him the joy of this victory. And you can, by now I just turned 10. You can imagine the rage that was in a little boy to do that. And, by, and I stood there. I watched those flames as he went on and on about how terrible I was. The flames looked closer to my fingers. I couldn't, after a while, I couldn't hear them. All I could hear was the blood pounding in my ears. And I clenched every muscle in my body, and I watched my fingers, my thumb and my uh, my index finger, turn red. I watched uh, a bubble pop out from a blister, and I watched smoke begin to curl up. And I said, I'm not dropping. I, I cannot lose again. This was going to be, in my mind, his Waterloo, but it was going to be my Masada. I don't <laughs> retreat from here. That's the level of rage and hurt I had as a little boy. Uh, when finally one of the little kids couldn't stand it, jumped up and slapped it out of my hand. But and everybody screamed and scattered, and I stood on that chair all by myself. And, Wayne, I had my calling in life at age 10. I said, I know what happens when children don't have a champion, when children don't have a voice, and somehow I will spend my life protecting and fighting for children. Who knew that the the loss of my little friends in the village from poverty and my resolve to fight for kids would lead me uh, to Compassion International? and ultimately to the presidency of Compassion International. And all I do, with the same courage and, and, and to and a large extent the same level of rage, I champion children. That's why I wrote Too Small to Ignore, was to give a voice to those who have no voice. And it all came from uh, my life by age 10. You can actually look at my life and you can date it uh, B.C., before Candle, <laughs> and, uh, and A.D., after the destruction. And for those who are anxious for me right now, uh, God redeemed that through forgiveness. My part on them. They never asked my forgiveness. I chose to forgive them so as not to carry them around, hurting me the rest of my life. There's much more to Wes Stafford's story, and we'll hear it coming up in the second half of today's First Person. 
When you join us next week, a young man tells of his addiction to gambling. I haven't gambled in over 10 years, and every day it's a struggle. And I'm thankful that God keeps it real in my life, because I think if for one minute I thought, yeah, I could play poker here, or I could go to the track, and I could handle it this time, I, I would be in that same mess. It's another powerful story of redemption. You'll meet Rob Wolgate next week, right here on First Person. Let's continue our conversation with Wes Stafford, the president of Compassion International, talking about his abuse as a child. He lived with this and carried this secret for decades. I didn't know how to speak about this. Uh, how, how do you explain that God allowed this to happen to you as a little boy? I used to wonder, you know, where did my prayers go? I used to scream for mercy into my pillow. Uh, where did that go? You know, was I assigned the laziest guardian angel in all of heaven? <laughs> Uh, and since I couldn't explain it in a way that uh, that would honor uh, or explain the God I love, I chose to say nothing, and I said nothing for thirty five years. Uh, but finally, I did in my in my book. But there was a pivotal moment when I got back to the United States at age seventeen. But at age seventeen, I was at a, a at a camp, and, and there was a, a one man in one moment uh, explained forgiveness. And he said, some of you have been deeply, deeply hurt. You have got people who have damaged your life, and you've never forgiven them. And it's not costing them anything. Uh, it's only costing you. Yes. You are carrying them around. You are letting them live rent-free in your heart. And it's not bothering them at all. You're the only one paying the price. And there's only one way out of this, and that is to forgive them. And I, and I thought to myself, in the back row where I was, you know, I was a completely lost young teenager in America. I thought, well, what do you do when, nobody, when they're not sorry? Mm-hmm. And I sensed God say, well, you forgive them anyway. And so with clenched teeth and <laughs> the same rage I had, uh, I determined to forgive them. And I said, to my, I said to them, you people, I know that you're not sorry. I know you never will apologize. So I choose to forgive you. So you get out of my mind, and you get out of my heart, and you get out of my life. You stole my childhood. I'm not giving you the rest of my life. I choose to forgive you. Now, get out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was the best I could do as a very damaged uh, teenager. Can you imagine the turn your life would have taken if you had not made that conscious decision? I would be in prison today. We're not going to go into all the details here, but mm-hmm. suffice it to say that at least some limited justice was eventually realized there. Um, but I, I, I'm more interested in how it affected you and how that propelled you to have the heart that you have to work uh, primarily through compassion these days and do the things that you do. Yeah. Well, justice took, of course, many, many, many years, and it really didn't come about until I finally was willing to speak about it. Uh, and those, those people were held accountable. And, um, uh, you know, I turned the page and they're gone. Yeah. Uh, but what I did was look forward and, uh, the, the loss of my little boyhood friends in the village had moved my heart toward the poor. And the knowing what uh, abuse feels like and what it does to the spirit of a child propelled me to be a champion for children. By the way, Wayne, both of those things speak a message into the heart of a child, and it's an identical message. Poverty says the same thing that abuse says, and the, and the message is, give up. <laughs> you don't matter. Nobody cares about you. Nobody's coming to your rescue. That is the exact antithesis to the gospel. The gospel is God knows you. He loves you. He knit you in your mama's womb. He knows the hairs on your head. 
And when I was able to forgive, I, I, I stopped looking back and I looked forward. And I said, you know what? I know about poverty. I know that message that it breathes into a little child's heart. So I will fight for these little children. And I know that, that abuse says the same thing. And somehow, when I got to America, uh, I saw all the food and all of the, uh, all of the medicine, and I realized my friends didn't need to die. And I knew that somehow my life was going to have to bridge these two worlds. And I realize Americans are sweet, wonderful, gentle-spirited people who are the most generous people in the history of humanity. And it isn't that they don't care, it's that they don't know. And when they do know, they really, really care. And about the time all of this came together in my mind, I stumbled onto a place 34 years ago called Compassion International. And all it does is bridge these two worlds. It takes a little child in poverty and links them to somebody who cares, uh, who loves the Lord in Chicago. And we serve as the bridge, a two-way bridge, by the way. It's not everything that we have that That's they need. Right. Sure. It's what they have that we desperately Absolutely. need. Absolutely. Like love and hope and joy and the power of prayer and faith. Oh, my goodness. When the poor and the those who God has blessed financially uh, get together, uh, they need each other. And so now, I've been here 34 years, Compassion has over a million of these links. We have a million, 200,000 little children, each one, and they're now in 26 countries, each one is linked to somebody in the United States or in Europe uh, who are willing, kind of like the Good Samaritan was, to say, you know what, you take care of this guy, this little boy in, in the Philippines, uh, but I will pay the bill. I can come up with $38. I will be the one who pays the bill while you do the work on this little child. And I bet you'd like to do a million more, wouldn't you? Oh, it just kills me. If I was a millionaire, it wouldn't last 10 (laughs) seconds. Uh, But what you know, the thing that's just warming my heart, compassion has doubled in size in the last four years. And the reason, Wayne, is because the church is finally beginning to wake up. And they're realizing we can't live in this world of hurting people without doing something. And now the question is, so what can we do? And what Compassion has offered all these years is, well, you may not be able to change everything, but you could change everything for one child. And so why don't you reach out and say, I will be the Good Samaritan for that child. So I'm going to say to that child, I'm looking at you. I've got your picture on my refrigerator. I pray for you every night. I'm watching your progress. I believe in you. Don't you dare give up. And that's all we do. I know you could tell us hundreds and thousands of stories, but just tell us a, a something that you've encountered recently that just reminds you of the mission of compassion. Tell me, personalize it for me, would you, Wes? Mm. Uh, I eventually began working in uh, in Haiti uh, with compassion. My first years were down there in Haiti, among the poorest of the poor. And um, I was one of those who uh, who registered little children to be a part of this program. And among those little ones that I rescued was a little boy from the island of Laganov, which is the poorest. If Haiti's poor, this is extreme poor. And uh, this little boy uh, registered him in the, in the program. Uh, over the years, I visited, and he sat on my lap while the other children sang. And uh, this little boy got sponsored uh, by a sponsor, and uh, he grew up, and he grew up, and he grew up. And last week, uh, no, two weeks, I learned about it last week. He, uh, he happened two weeks ago. He was elected senator <laughs> in Haiti. So a child from oh, the absolute man. depths of poverty is now in a position of power to bless his nation. Yeah. Oh, yeah, don't get me started. I can tell you <laughs> stories all day long. Yeah, I know you can. Hey, I know you're working on a new book. Can you give us a little hint of what's to come? Oh, this is good. I'm doing this with Moody Publishers. By the way, you know, I graduated from Moody myself. 
when when it came my turn to be old enough to go to college, I went to Moody. I was there from seven uh, from sixty seven to seventy. I love the school that D.L. Moody founded. But can you sing the school song? I can sing the song. <laughs> yes, I can. Okay. I well, do it very well in the shower. Well, look at the time. It's slipping away here. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, um, you know, it's been five years since I wrote Too Small to Ignore, and part of Too Small to Ignore, just a few pages of it, made the case that when children are small, the cement of their, their soul is a lot like wet cement, and it doesn't take much of an impression that can last a lifetime. Uh, and it can be just done in a minute. So the name of the book is Just a Minute. Uh, and you might, and I, what I've done is I've gathered many stories of famous people who, had, who can tell you the moment where their life got launched. Who said something, did something, put a star at the top of the paper, gave them a hug that absolutely launched their life. On the other hand, my candle moment, that was 90 seconds, mm-hmm, by the way, that mm-hmm. candle burned. But that was a moment that launched my life, but it was a negative moment. Yeah. And you can destroy the life of a child in the span of just a, uh, just a minute. And so what we're doing with Moody Publishers is I'm writing a book uh, that tells the stories of outstanding people who can remember the pivotal moment of their life, where they were seriously hurt and God redeemed it for good, or somebody said the right thing at the right time, and they have built their life off of it. Somebody said, my, but that was a kind thing to do, and now you work in a charity of some kind. Or someone said, my, but you're smart, and now you're a scientist. All can come about from just a minute. So the, the, the title is sort of like, how long does it take to transform a child's life? Well, just a minute. Mm-hmm. But that's what I'm writing. Wes, lots of joy, lots of pain mm-hmm. in your past. Any regrets? No, because I know that God has us in the palm of his hands. You know, I didn't talk about what I went through because all I saw was the back side of the tapestry. I saw knots and tangles and what looked like mistakes and God neglecting me. But as I wrote that book and I finally was able to talk about the story, it was like turning the tapestry around and all of the threads mattered and all of them formed a beautiful design. And I was able to look and say, you know what? God was there all the time. And when my guardian angel ran to him and said, uh, don't you hear his prayers? Don't you see his tears? I can imagine that the Lord must have teared up and said, yeah, you know what, I do. I hear every strap of that belt. I hear every tear. I hear every prayer. But he needs to do this. He needs to know this because I've got a purpose for this young man to help bless the children of the world. It's a perfect plan, and one day he'll understand it. And I do understand it today. I praise God. And I, and I know for anyone who is out there damaged, God can redeem anything to his glory to me it's incredible that someone who suffered so much pain and abuse as a child should be called by god to turn around and spend his life helping children worldwide once again west stafford is the president of compassion international calling us to change the world one child at a time west says that now is the time to act on behalf of the world's children and invest in them because they are too small to ignore And by the way, if you've not read this excellent book by Wes, I strongly recommend it to you. It's titled Too Small to Ignore, Why Children Are the Next Big Thing. And we look forward to that new book coming from Wes as well. But we've placed links and additional information about compassion, as well as the book that tells Wes's story on our website, firstpersoninterview.com. And if you feel led to sponsor a child through compassion, just follow the links found at firstpersoninterview.com. First Person is a weekly conversation heard at this time, and if you're curious about past or future guests, you'll find both an audio archive and a calendar online at firstpersoninterview.com. 
Next week, we'll meet a young man who was an addictive gambler while still a teenager. Meet Rob Walgate on First Person. Now, with thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard, and we'll talk to you again next week on First Person. First Person.